the the bare essential to worship is attention. It's not actually sound and music and words. It's just attention. That's where worship begins. So even to sit in a moment of silence with our attention turned towards the Lord, that's the starting blocks of worship. Just that simple. (laughs) I often tell my kids after they've done something wrong, look me in the eyes. I want their attention. Lord wants our attention consistently. Not even just to correct us, but just so he could restore the joy that we need within. He just says, slow down. Look at me. Turn your attention to me. There doesn't have to be noise. There doesn't have to be anyone leading you. It doesn't have to be a, a worship team or whatever. Worship happens just by merely turning our attention to him. So even in our gatherings as we sing, when there's times where there's like little to nothing happening, oh, there's something happening. Our attention should be turning to the Lord. It's the beginning of worship. Um, How about we go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Um, this month, we're jumping out of Galatians for a little bit, and uh, we're, we're jumping into what we would refer to as kind of our membership content, um, just talking about what the church is, who we are in particular as Mercy Gate Church, how we view ourselves, uh, but then also, what is it for members of the church to carry responsibility to one another and obviously to the Lord? So that's in the coming weeks. Those questions are going to be kind of drawn out and filled in, so to speak. And so this morning we're an- asking the question, what is, what is the church? Before we understand our responsibilities to anything, to one another, uh, to the Lord, uh, it's just to ask that question, what in the world is is the church? So I want to direct your attention to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 10. Um, And just so you know, like when it comes to answering that question, what is the church, there's plenty of other passages in Scripture to go to. There's much description to what the church is, but I think these verses in particular define something that perhaps um, the Western church needs to reclaim. It needs to see itself in a particular way, uh, and that's what will give kind of the majority of our attention to. So, Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Remember, this is the moment. The seven churches have already been addressed. We now are taken up into heaven itself, and there is grief within heaven because there is no one on heaven or on earth who is found worthy to open the scroll, right? That is to say, there is no one who is worthy to bring redemptive history to this final, adequate, just conclusion. No one is worthy. 
You and I are not worthy. There is no figure in this world that is worthy, nor spirit being in heaven that is worthy to open that scroll. No one has the right to do that. And so we read verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns referencing his omnipotence, his complete, comprehensive power and authority over all things, and his seven eyes, his omnipresence. He sees everything which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And heaven bursts into song. I love that whether on heaven or earth, God's like, sing to me, sing to me. <laughs> and they sang a new song in heaven saying, worthy are you, Lamb of God, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, this is important, this is the focus, you have made them a kingdom and what? Priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. When we begin thinking about how we're supposed to answer the question of what is the church, I just, oh, it's so important that we say this first. We don't begin by looking out there. We don't begin looking at the things that are called churches. We don't begin by looking at this building, you know, the, the, the steeple and stones of a structure. We don't begin there. We don't begin with, uh, if we could say it this way, the mind of man and what he's contrived and what he is so often confused when it comes to this idea of the church. We don't begin looking just without. We don't begin exploring, okay, what has man invented throughout history that is something he calls the church? We don't begin there. Man has most often throughout church history in his own kind of self-interest and self-will and self-ambition made such a confusion of what the church is to be. So if we're to answer this question, what is the church, we don't look to the human mind nor to the ways that man has perhaps confused the church, but we must look to the mind of God himself. It's incredible. The church is the invention of God. It's his invention. Out of kind of, we could say, like the, the vast storehouses of his wisdom. How unsearchable are your ways, O oh God, right? In, in, in the vast wisdom of God, he has intended this thing that we refer to as the church. It came out of 
his mind. It came out of his wisdom. He invented it. It's his idea. But it's also important to recognize that the church is just not God's idea. It's not just something that he, that he thought up before the foundation of the world, before there was time and space. He had this idea of the church. It's not just his invention. It's not just coming from his mind. But if we would begin answering the question, what is the church? Yes, it's an invention of God's mind. But it is also something that has ushered from his heart. You realize that the church is fundamentally a gift. It's been birthed out of this unction of love within the Godhead. That God the Father looked to the Son and said, I'm going to gift you with something amazing. I want to love on you. I want to glorify you. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you a church. Or we could say a bride, as the church is oftentimes referred to. God the Father is giving the church to his son. So when it begin, when we begin, you know, oh, what in the world is this church thing? There's so much confusion out there. No, we begin by looking into the mind of God. This is his invention. This is his idea. And it's come out of this heart of love that he has, the father, for the son. Saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to grant you this incredible gift. It's called the church. You say, well, where do we see that in the Bible? Where we could go to uh, Psalm 2. There's plenty of places. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite when it comes to this idea of God the Father granting the Son this gift of the church. So Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7, states this. And it's, it's uh, it's this psalm where the nations at this time are raging, right? They're coming against God and... And they're hating on God and hating on his purposes. And and God is not like confused. Oh no, what do I do? He's not kind of reeling back. Psalm 2 says he laughs at the nations. There's God just chuckling away. Oh, you idiots. You idiots. You think you can rage against me? You think you can unseat me? But then God has this wonderful statement. He takes us back to before the foundation of the world. Just notice what he says. Chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, it says, As for me, God is saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. He's saying, I'll tell you of the decision that I made before the foundation of the world even was there. Right? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and listen, I will give you the nations as your heritage. That's another name for the church. It's another name for those who the Father has intended to give to the Son. Yes, the Son will come and rule and reign over all nations. He will subdue them with a rod of iron, as that psalm goes on to say. But he will be granted in that process a heritage, a legacy among a certain people, an inheritance that the Father has granted to the Son. This is where we begin when we think of the church. This is something that has come out of the heart and mind of God 
himself. It is not the product of man. It's not man's engineering. It's not man's doing. It's not man's invention. It is God's idea. It's come out of his mind. It's come out of his heart. So with that then, let's turn to Romans chap- or, uh, Revelation chapter 5 to gain some further definition on what we refer to as the church. Uh, Once again, chapter five, you know, we're taken up into heaven. There's this grief within heaven. Suddenly there's this lamb who is seen. He is standing as though he had been slain. He is the resurrected Christ. And what we find then is, yes, heaven bursting into this song. And we find something then of the definition to who we are as the church. And remember, John has already, by way of the revelation that Jesus has given, already addressed the seven churches in the previous chapters. Right? So this is all then instruction to the church, reminding them of actually who they are because there's going to be some hard days ahead. So they need to know who they are. They need to be able to answer this question, who in the world are we as the church? And that's part of this song that we find here. What is the church? Well, verse 6, we see a lamb standing as though he had been slain. That's important. And verse 9, then, heaven sings, worthy are you, slain lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals. And why? Why is he so worthy? For you were what? Slain. Slain. And by your blood you did what? You ransomed people for God. This is the essence of the church. It is a people of his blood. It is all those throughout time who have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. The church, by definition, is a ransomed people, a blood-bought people, a people of his blood. It's the blood that has paid the price. It's his blood that has ransomed us. And so the church is a people who have come to realize that they carry in themselves no capacity whatsoever to be made right with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but it's the Lamb standing in resurrection power who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We are a blood-bought people. There is only mercy that we revel in. It's only mercy. We brought nothing to the table but our lack. We brought nothing to the table but our brokenness and sin, but it's this slain lamb in great mercy who came, gave himself for us. We were ransomed. The price was paid for us by the blood of the lamb. We are a people of his blood. So to me... To be ransomed means that I've been set free from something into something. You even think of the movie Ransom. Was that Mel Gibson back in the day or something like that? You know, There was a price that had to be paid to get that child back. In very similar circumstances, that's what's happening here. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are held captive under our sinful nature, following the principalities and powers of darkness. 
We were without hope, without God in this world, but Christ brought us near. He took us from captivity, set us free from something and to something. That's the idea of ransom. We have now a new belonging from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Uh, we could say it this way. We no longer, as blood-bought people, uh, have the, the old address. We're no, you know, this is just the way my, my mind works. We're no longer found on Old Man Avenue. Right? We no longer live there. We're no longer connected to that. Our legal status is no longer son of disobedience. Our last name is no longer, if you remember from the Galatians series, dead man walking. By the blood, we have a new belonging. We've been taken out of that, set free from that, and we've been brought near by the blood of the Lamb. And who have we been brought near to but God himself? The slain Lamb ransomed the people for God. Out of the captivity of their own sin and brokenness and ultimate damnation that they would face, now to God. We were ransomed from something. We were ransomed to something, which is actually when we think of the uh, term church, Greek word ekklesia. It refers to the called out ones. Once again, those who have been called out from something and to something. Here in Revelation 5, verse 9, we are ransomed. We are called out uh, of our sin by the blood of the Lamb, and we are called to God. That is, He possesses us. We are His. We have been possessed, we could say, by the blood of the Lamb. We have been apprehended by the crimson flow of His cross. And therein the church doesn't live unto itself. It doesn't live unto itself. The church does not first exist for your needs. Do we get it? The Western church, in my estimation, it's all about the needs of the people. We worship the wants, the needs, the preferences of the people. What's going to get the people in? What's going to keep the people in? And there's nothing wrong with these things, but donuts and coffee and nice, you know, air-conditioned space and make everything. That, and I'm not saying let's make it hard either, right? But the programs, driven churches, oh, we got to meet all the needs and be something for everybody, we got to sing the right songs, the ones that the people like. we got to sing according, even Barna has put out, you know, <laughs> it's just insane. Like most churches, uh, most people within the church want to sing 30 to 45 minutes. That's a safe place to sing. And it's like, what? Like, that's not the church. The church is not about what you want, or I want, or, or our preferences, or the songs that we like, or the, or the great octave lifts at certain songs, like, yeah, get us all excited. I, I just want to say, that's empty. That will not transform you. 
that will not deal with the brokenness that we carry around. We don't need just songs that we prefer to change us. Things have to be changed. We are His blood-bought people. Our first assignment is to honor Him. We should be coming in on Sunday saying, what does the Lord want? What does the Lord want? What does the Lord want? Personally, corporately, what does He want? We are possessed by Him. His blood has purchased us. I no longer am stuck in that captivity of my own preferences and my own self-want, my own self-actualization. I've been set free from that to say, Jesus, I'm here for you. What do you want? Slain lamb. Resurrected lamb. What do you want? That is the church. It is a people of his blood. Now notice, and this is kind of a side note, but (laughs) you think just how far reaching his blood goes. Just notice verse 9. Where where is this people from? Well, from every what? Tribe, language. Yeah, everyone's probably got different... uh, Different words, different translations. Every tribe and language and people and nation. That's how far his blood has reached. Not only has he brought us from the depths of our depravity, but that blood has gone global. Right? It's, it's a people. That is to say, the church is a global entity. What we have here in Wissanoming is just a local expression of a global reality. Right? So we're not a thing even unto ourselves. <laughs> Mercy gate name can fall for all I care. That banner can drop. Because we're not a thing unto ourselves. We're a thing unto this global reality, this blood-bought reality that we call the church. And maybe just to clarify, some of you might hear the term used, the Catholic church. The Apostles' Creed, there you go, right? You you have the Catholic Church, right? And what we're talking about is not the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about the big C universal church. It's a global reality. His blood has reached so deep into our depravity to raise us up in his righteousness, but also it has extended so far. It's a global reality, a universal church. Yes, it has local expressions, but we got brothers and sisters right down there at True Vine. Right? We're, we're in this together. Oh, but, but, but are they reformed and are they this and that? You know what? <laughs> it's like, I, that's a secondary concern for me. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we have the main thing? Do we recognize ourselves as blood-bought people? And if that's the case, man, I could do fellowship with you. We have so many needs within the city. We have so many needs within the church itself that we have to be careful of what we divide over. We have to recognize there is one bride, one global church that will be given to Jesus as a love gift from the Father. So first, if you're wondering what is the church, it's a blood-bought people. Second, verse 10, and here's just my own language for it. We are a people of his presence. And this is, this is the aspect that I think the church needs to uh, reclaim in terms of who she understands herself to be. Now, it's true 
Scripture gives us all kinds of descriptions as to what the church is, and each description carries something of significance. It shows us our identity. It shows us something of our responsibility. So let me just go through a few of these before getting to verse 10. The church is referred to, remember, as a body. Right? So Ephesians 5 says, Christ is the head of the church. It gets back to that idea that he is He possesses us. We are his. He is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And of course, when we think of a body and all the different members of it, it's to emphasize something that we are unified in Jesus, but we got to function with one another. It has to do with fellowship. It has to do with gifting. It has to do with how we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But then we also hear things like, well, the church is a family. We could go to Ephesians 2.19, where the church is referred to as a household of God. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters when it comes down to it. Uh, You go to 1 Timothy 5, and what you find is that Paul is instructing Timothy on how we're to walk out these family relationships with one another. How, like, the next generation is supposed to relate to the older generation, right? And, And how then, even from male to female, those interactions should take place. Because we're a family, we should see one another as brothers and sisters in the faith. Scripture also refers to the church, of course, as the bride. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, Ephesians 5, yes, is that familiar text. Um, And it's so, it emphasizes the intimacy that we are to have with Jesus. It isn't to be sexualized. But in a real sense, it is to carry kind of romantic undertones. That romantic pursuit. Knowing and and, and, and treasuring the presence of that person. And wanting it, hungering for it. And as the groom, so to speak, what does he do for the church in Ephesians 5? But he... He washes her, and he nourishes her, and he strengthens her. It's this beautiful relational intimacy that is emphasized between the church and Christ. She is his bride. Scripture will also refer to the church, and this is getting more closely to the point of verse 10 in Revelation 5, but Scripture will refer to the church as God's temple or his dwelling place. So Ephesians 2.22, just listen. In Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which is to say, we, as we've said before, we are to be a pleasing place for the Spirit of God to reside. He used to say, oh man, I love when Mercy Gate gathers together. I love to be in the midst of them. I love to reveal myself to them, right? Now, all these descriptions of the church, once again, carry weight and importance and significance and deserve our attention. But from time to time throughout church history, you see certain aspects of the church necessarily emphasized and at even times reclaimed. Um, And I think in our day, there is an aspect of the church that is central to who Christ has made us to be that perhaps is in need of being reclaimed. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I think ah, I, I think it needs to be reclaimed, especially in the Western world. 
so we see it in verse 10. Heaven, okay, still bursting into song. Worthy is this lamb, incredible, right? And it states, and you, the resurrected lamb, the worthy one, have made them, that people that you ransom, the church, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. A kingdom and priests. These, these terms refer to the church's proximity to and responsibility to the presence of God. Catch that? Those terms, kingdom and priest to our God, right? It's, it's the idea of proximity to God and also this responsibility to God. And the responsibilities, particularly if we would, you know, explore the idea of the priests, the priests, of course, in the Old Testament were Levites, and what was their, like, 24-7 responsibility? It was to minister to God. It was to minister to God. God wants to be ministered to. He wants his people to gather and lift up praise to him. He loves to inhabit that place. And that, of course, was part of the uh, priest's responsibility, right? They resided, if you remember in the Old Testament, they resided over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. They continuously ministered to God. There were 24-hour shifts of Levites that constantly guarded the temple courts, but then constantly ministered to the Lord through worship, through prayer, through sacrifice. Even when David restored the tabernacle, he restored something of tabernacle worship. You know what he did? He assigned Levites to constantly give God praise. It'd be like showing up and just like, okay, you, 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 you're just going to praise God. Just keep praising him. Well, what do I have to praise him about? You know, after 15 minutes, I kind of lose track of anything to say to him. Well, figure it out. Keep praising him. Keep praising him. He's, he's just worthy of the praise. You keep at it. You keep at it. You keep at it. You keep at it. Also that he is pleased to dwell in our midst. Keep ministering to his heart. Keep ministering to the Lord. Make it a pleasing place for him to dwell. That's what the Levites did again and again and again and again. And today's church, <laughs> once again, we, we have such small capacities for worship. To think of 24-7 worship, to think of just ongoing worship given to the Lord seems like beyond us, seems like something that man would contrive rather than God. I think it's oftentimes thought of that. But the church is a priesthood. We are to be a people of his presence. Our priority is to minister to him. The church has nothing to do first with our preferences, what songs we like, what passages of scripture we like, how we prefer to serve, what the church can offer me. It's not fundamentally about you. The aim of the priesthood, the aim of the church is ministering to God. And once again, unfortunately, the Western church is largely too busy, too consumeristic, too self-focused. 
The agenda is to serve the people again, what will bring them in, what will keep them in, what songs we sing, what activities we're pride, what strategies we implement are geared for the people. And what the church then becomes is a hollow vestige of what God intends it to be, a dwelling place for his glory. Now, I don't know, maybe some of this is confusing. I think if I would have heard this, someone saying what I'm just saying, uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, I would have just been like, oh, brother. Um, I, I wouldn't have stomach for it. But when the Lord kind of brings you to the end of yourself, and that, that's got to be your own journey in so many ways. He's got to bring you to the end of yourself and, and actually position you to go deeper with him. Then you begin to recognize, oh, sustained worship is actually an incredible thing. You know, uh, the Levites, if you remember, they weren't given a portion of land. You know, all the other tribes got something. <laughs> well done, here's some land for you, right? What did the Levites get? What was their reward? God. Tending to his presence. Tending to him, the reward was God. <laughs> I don't think uh, that reward, so to speak, has changed for the church. God still wants to bless his people with his presence. But, oh, there's, there's so many layers of the church that it's got to shrug off <laughs> to even have a sustained pursuit of God, even to have a sustained ministry to God. Um, he is deserving of that. And I, I think perhaps... When it comes to the activity of the church, which is important, and we don't want to overlook that, um, those activities have to flow from that place of ministry to the Lord. We don't first do mission. Right? Uh, even as uh, John Piper would say in his uh, uh, book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, he will say, missions exist because worship doesn't. Right? Worship is the precursor. Worship is the main thing. Worship is central. Worship moves mission, and mission creates worship, in other words. So there's a priority to this focus on the priesthood of the church, tending to the Lord. And that then dovetails right into that second aspect of the church, that it is a kingdom. Kingdom refers to a God-given authority. You remember Jesus showing up, and uh, after he has been resurrected, he's showing up to his disciples, and he has that wonderful Great Commission kind of uh, word where he says, all authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore. That's commissioning language. Go, therefore, and make disciples. I have authority. I'm investing that authority to you. I am the king of kings. You are going to be my royal people. You will carry something of my own authority into your daily living as my people. Right? 
But even as you would refer to the Old Testament, the Old Testament kings were anointed by God. So you have Saul, you got David, those stories in particular. You know, they got, they got the oil. They were anointed by God, consecrated to him. To be a kingdom doesn't just mean that God, that Jesus has given us his authority, his right to go forward and share his good news with the world, but it's also that we are in need of his anointing. We are in need of his empowering presence. Remember? As Jesus would say that great commission word at the end of Matthew, that then leads us to those days of Pentecost. Jesus is like, yep, I want you to go make disciples, but wait, er, like, let's put a pause on this because you need something. You don't need just my authoritative blessing. Yes, you are royal kings and queens of the king of kings, and yet you still need my unction. You need my anointing. You need my strength. And what? does the king of kings pour out upon his church but the anointing of his spirit? Which is to say, we need to understand how the spirit desires to empower mission. But just put those, it's so important that you would see kingdom and priests put together in the same phrase. The role of the church, once again, is first to minister to the Lord, to make this a pleasing place for his presence to dwell. And only then, and only then, <laughs> is it for us to then go by his anointing, go by his strengthening, go by the power of his spirit to share his word with others. This is the church. Again, it brings us back to this sense of responsibility to minister first and foremost to him. Now, uh, maybe this confuses us in some ways. Because may maybe it's like, what, what do we mean by God's presence, ministering to God's presence? Isn't God omnipresent? Doesn't he just exist everywhere? And we would say, yes, Psalm 139. He, you can't go anywhere where God's not. But we must also realize that God has promised to be uniquely present among his people. In other words, he's promised to inhabit the praises of his people. He's intended that he would draw near to what he refers to as his house of prayer. He's promised to attend the preaching of his word with his presence. He has promised that he would mystically bind his presence to the sacraments of communion and baptism. He promises to be present among his people in these kind of unique ways. He is not present at Wawa right now as he intends to be right here. Does that make sense? We, we, we refer to this um, perhaps as God's manifest presence. He has chosen this people to be present with and to be uniquely present with. And you, well, okay, how do we see him? How do we know him? How can we, so to speak, uh, know that we have ministered to the Lord, that he has been with us? How do we, how do we know that his presence is with us? Uh, well, we recognize throughout Scripture, sometimes he does reveal himself physically. He reveals himself by a cloud 
He reveals himself by fire. Sometimes he shakes the threshold of the room that his people are in. But mostly, mostly since he is spirit, God is spirit. So as we worship him in spirit and in truth, we might encounter him with the warmth and peace that passes all understanding. Sometimes we encounter him through a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Sometimes it's a, it's a love for God that ushers from within that is something otherly. Sometimes it's God made manifest through the gifts of the Spirit, through healings, deliverances, prophetic words, etc. Sometimes it's simply awe that we experience. It's this sudden freedom of self-awareness. Just the other week when Jody and I went down to the conference, there were these moments of worship where suddenly the band actually stopped playing. And there was about 1,500 people, and the whole crowd just erupts in praise. And you'd expect, okay, yeah, you usually have a little clap, a little hallelujah after a song. It just didn't stop. And you stand there in that place, And in those moments, there's an incredible grace that sweeps through you where you find yourself unaware of yourself. That is liberty. I don't don't know if, if you've caught those moments. To not be aware of me. To not be caught up in what's happening and, oh, those lights on and those not light on. That person's playing this or not playing this or doing this or not doing that. Or people walking and coming and going. Like, there's, there's, an, there's an absolute lack of self-awareness and all distractions seemingly are cut out. And there, if it was in a physical sense, you would be face to face with God himself. Taken up with his glory. And there's something of just... Perfect freedom in that, where you're just like, I am countering the Lord right now. This is amazing. It's satisfying to the heart. It's satisfying to the mind. It's, it's just liquid richness pouring over you by his presence. <laughs> it is amazing. It is wonderful. It's the awe. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, it's that awe that's referenced among the church. They find this awe again and again as they gather together. It's awe. It's the freedom from self-awareness. It's like when his presence comes and is made manifest, it eradicates self-interest. We are consumed with awe and him. And folks, that is the great blessing, once again, of the priesthood. It's the blessing of the priesthood. (laughs) We've been bought by the blood of the lamb. That That could just be enough. But God's like, no, 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 no. I want to reside with you. I want you to encounter my presence. I want you to set a place where my presence is pleased to come. 
I want to encounter you. I want you to encounter me. I want this to be a thing we get to do together, that I would be your nourishment. Or as Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you a drink. It'll satisfy. Folks, that's what we're after. By the way, that's why we named ourselves Mercy Gate. <laughs> right? It refers to Ezekiel 47. It's the temple. And there in the temple, Ezekiel is seeing this vision of this water trickle out from the altar down through the eastern gate, also known as the Mercy Gate. And through then the Mercy Gate, this water just... It's no longer a trickle, it becomes a river, and wherever the river goes, it brings life. That's the aim. That should be the New Testament. No matter what local expression of church, by the way, again, Western where we are confused with what church is, we got it backwards, we got a lot of repenting to do, we got a lot of correcting to do. But no matter where you go in Philly to, evangel to an evangelical church, there should be there should be an encounter with God. Ooh. I remember being taught, I remember being taught this in seminary. Don't expect much when you go to church. Don't expect much when you go to church. Like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Don't expect much. You know, that sermon might be given for someone else in the crowd. <laughs> that, you know, that, that music may touch the heart of someone else in the crowd. You don't want to have so high of expectations that you become disappointed when you gather as God's people. I look back on that moment when I heard that, and I wish I had the wherewithal to stand up and say, No! And folks, I hear it again and again from folks. It's, it's like this desire to keep themselves like emotionally controlled. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to be disappointed. Folks, we should have high expectation that as we gather together, God is going to meet with us. I don't care if that sermon is directly aimed at you, for you, if it sweeps you off your feet. I don't care if the winsome words that come from whatever this thing is, pulpit, stand, blah, blah, blah. I don't care if that captivates you. You better be captivated by the Lord. You better come more hungry for Jesus than for treats, right? You better come saying, I, I have to surrender again because me, I, this guy has gotten in the way of things this past week. I has fallen off the altar and I need to bring it back Die again to self so that Christ might live in. So I might have an encounter with the living God. The blood-bought people were blood-bought to engage with their God. First and foremost, that we would minister to him, encounter him, be satisfied with him, where all our other wants and desires just dissolve like dust in the wind. Why do I want that? I got him. C.S. Lewis says the church is far too busy, right? Playing with mud pies in the slums rather than having the vacation at the beach that God has designed for them. That vacation at the beach is an encounter with the glorious one. He's the reward. There should be expectation. If I'm not feeling good on a Sunday morning, like this morning, like who wants to come out on this morning? 
Like, I want an extra blanket. I want to, you know, snuggle up to something warm and have a little coffee and stay in bed. Like, that's where I, Dan, wants to be. But there's another fire <laughs> that my heart just isn't right without. I have to encounter him. I have to get to him. It's costly, isn't it? It's costly. It has to cost you something. It costs the Levites something. Do you think they had ambitions? <laughs> Go get this job, have this field, have, you know, raise a family, all this kind of stuff. I think those, those Levites surrendered a lot, sacrificed a lot just to pursue the reward. That was Yahweh himself. I think the church has to get back to that expectation that as we gather, God's going to gather with us. That we have a costly responsibility to minister to him first and foremost. It's not about filling the seats. It's not about hearing my song. It's not about making sure the preacher's saying the right words. It's that my heart would have its attention Turn to the glorious one. Say, Lord, here I am for you. To minister to you. Just a final illustration. Uh, as we were down at that conference, I've told a few this story. Um, you know, we started meeting people who were a part of this um, ministry school. That was a part of the church that was putting on this conference. And so you'd run into all these kind of younger, you know, 20-some age kids. And um, I can now call them kids since I'm over the hill. Uh, so, you know, we, we're interacting with several. And, and it's like the same story. We hear, we're hearing the same story. But the way this one girl communicated her story was just like, ah, uh, it just stuck with me. She, you know, come to find out she's actually from Lancaster. And... Uh, as we're, as we're talking, she, you know, I ask her, you know, what, how'd you end up down at the school, you know? And uh, she said, um, she said, apart from Jesus, I'm a monster. Apart from Jesus, I'm a monster. She said uh, she was tormented. She, had, she actually started running to, like, new age stuff to kind of console all the turmoil within. She said, I, I found that without Jesus, I am a monster. And so she said, I, I, I had to do something dramatic, get down where I could just have concentra concentrated time ministering to him, encountering him. And in a roundabout way, she said, nah, that's what I'm addicted to. I, I know that if I'm to pull myself off the altar in any way, I will find myself tormented all over again. That's who I am without the Jesus, without encountering the presence, without being a Levite, without seeing myself as a priest whose number one responsibility is to tend to the presence of God and whose first and foremost reward is God himself. To step away from that, I become a monster, tormented within. Maybe for us, it's not that we feel as though we are a monster when we are off the altar. 
but I think our own, our wants and desires, our own dreams for life itself, find a place that sticks. It seems reasonable. Suddenly, what I want seems reasonable. Suddenly, my dreams and desires seem reasonable. And that's a scary place to be as Christians. That my life can be comfortably lived outside of the Holy of Holies. I think for James and I, our hearts are just this, that we would learn what it is. Learn what it is to be a people who first and foremost minister to the Lord. Like that's the church. To encounter his presence. To be filled. Not to take this theoretically, but like if Jesus says he's life and life in abundance, I want to snuggle up to that reality as best as I can. Because <laughs> apart from that, I might think my own wants and desires and dreams are actually reasonable. So it's our desire as a church to kind of lead in that way, perhaps reclaim something that, of that as a, as a church, as a Western church. I don't know exactly what that looks like. It's probably gonna look weird, just as we read earlier of the woman, you know, breaking open the alabaster uh, flask upon Jesus. Everyone criticizes her, but what was she doing? She was ministering to the Lord. When Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, what does Martha do but criticize Mary? I think when you start breaking kind of expectations for what the church is to be, it's going to bring about some criticism. And that's why Jesus says, beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. And that's not just like them out there, it's that in here. I have to be careful of just kind of like sticking my heels in because I have political allegiance, allegiances or religious allegiances. This is the way church is supposed to be run. It's very interesting that the church is actually not given a whole lot of firm line-by-line -line detail for how it's to operate. And I think part of the reason is so that we find our own kind of way to the altar, that we find our own kind of way in pursuing and ministering to the Lord. So when you see things on, on YouTube and it's like these churches are just like, oh, that's emotionalism, that's crazy, that's this, that's that. Well, we do have to be careful. Maybe that's the path that God's taking them down to encounter him. He's teaching them something. He's humbling them. He's bringing them put to a point of surrender. Uh, most of this ministering, this costly, priestly ministering to the Lord, I'll just say it again, it's not going to look good on social media. What that woman did at the feet of Jesus, feet breaking open uh, that element, that did not look good. You could just imagine all the snot and tears in that moment. That, that is nothing. It's like, oh, we better take a selfie of this. I'm with Jesus. Snap, you know, isn't this great? It was messy. It was messy. It was messy not only because she comes broken as she is, but it's messy with all the criticism then that stands behind her, shaming her for what she's done. And I think that's just something the church has to learn. It's going to be messy. 
It's going to look weird. It's not going to be done perfectly. <laughs> but let's be careful where criticism lands. We need to get at the presence of God, make it a priority to minister to him. That is the church. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible mercy upon our hearts and lives. Blood bought, covered in the blood, <laughs> set free from the enemy, set free from our sin, set free from this world, set free from our flesh, and brought into relationship with you. Lord, how we need to learn <laughs> what it is to live in the freedom of that, how we learn, how we need to learn, how, how good it is that you are our one reward. Your presence with us, your kindness revealed to us. We love you, we love you, we love you for that. <laughs> what mercy you've shown us. So Lord, I just pray as a church um, Lord, as I've been praying, uh, you'd give us language for these kind of things. It's like you've taught us over the years, and it's like you've, you're taking us, you're taking us a place as, as a little church, but it always seems like that place is found in you, that it's you, that it's you, that it's you, that it's you. <laughs> so Lord, help us to pursue you well, to count the cost and to know what it is to minister according to your wants and desires. Lord, what would please you? That your pleasure would be our ultimate aim as your people. We would sense your smile over us, your pleasure over us, your favor and blessing over us as a people. Help us to that end. Grant us wisdom, we pray. As we close, um, I want to take the Lord's table. Um, my intention, again, is not to draw this out. Um, but I think we need to seal some of this by taking the table. Once again, the table is one of the responsibilities of the church. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. And it's a remembrance, yes, of the fact that we are a blood-bought people. Um, but it's also a remembrance of the fact that he wants in on this community. He wants to be the centerpiece. He wants to be the one reward of the Levites, of this priesthood. So I'd encourage you as you come and take the elements, you can return to your seats. I just ask you to take it on your own but take it as like a seal over what we've just talked about. If there, are, if there are concerns or questions, well, take it into that. Like, all right, Lord, step into my concerns and questions about this. Help me understand what this, what this is. Grant me discernment, grant me clarity so I can rightly walk out whatever you're calling me to. Sound good? All right, let's go ahead and stand. Come grab the elements. You can take them at your seat on your own.
I'd encourage you as you take the elements, again, use it as a seal over what we've just kind of talked about, asking the Lord to bring discernment to your own heart. But I'd encourage you again, like, he mystically binds himself to this moment where we remember who he is. We take him in as, just as we take in the elements. So remember that as you take these two elements on your own. Thank you. 